0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hemsler, developmental interventionist. How are you today, Ms. Laura? I'm doing really well. How about you?
0: I, too, am doing well. We're fortunate to have good weather in this part of the country, so we're looking good.
1: Oh, we are. Not so great for our friends on the East Coast, so if you are joining us from there, you still have power. (laughs) Woohoo! So that's a good thing. We've gotten quite a few orders from, I was just looking at orders from the East Coast today, and I was thinking, those are people that are home from work that still have power. They're surfing the Internet and ordering products for their children or for their... Practices, yeah. <laughs> so that is pretty, pretty good. And then I think our friends in West Virginia and Johnny and I were in West Virginia last year for a conference. Are expecting lots and lots of snow. I'm glad that didn't. Uh, I think Eastern Kentucky's getting snow, but we shouldn't get more than flurries here. In
0: well, Kentucky. I know about. for you that's a blizzard. So,
1: <laughs> a couple of feet. Uh, that's not no. a blizzard for you. <laughs> Oh, you've lived in Kentucky a long time. A couple of Yeah, feet, I yeah. still
0: have northern standards, though. I still scoff at the people who can't drive because they're a few inches on the ground.
1: And that would be
0: me. Yeah,
1: I know. <laughs> <laughs> My point exactly. Answer. Johnny and I were laughing when we opened our office this summer. We were saying maybe even in the snow we'll actually go to work on snow days since we're, oh, about not even a mile, really, from our our home to our office. So there you go. And we have a family coming from Alabama this week, and we were saying, I don't know if they're from Alabama or if they, um, I don't know where they're originally from, if snow is a big deal to them or not, but for My family from Mississippi, when they come and we even have a few snowflakes, boy, they are headed out the door. They are driving back home. So anyway, we'll have to see how that works. I wanted to, before we get rolling, say I had a great, great, great time in Chicago, and now Johnny and I are calling that Chicago One uh, last Thursday and Friday. We were in, uh, well, and again, the people there have told us, don't really call that Chicago, call that Warrenville or Naperville. I think we were on the on the line there between those two suburbs. And that uh that in the future that when we advertise it's a Chicago event, we might want to think about that and we just kind of laughed and said, This is Chicago to us so yeah. close anyway, enough. Great close enough to on get huh? Yeah. But great, great time, great crowd, lots and lots of podcast listeners in that crowd and people that would say very specific things to me about the show. And so I know they are longtime listeners. I want to say hello to Corinne who um, and Diane. Both those women said that they listen while they drive between appointments and that that's their work time activity where the entertainment for the day. And uh, Johnny was having a conversation with one of those ladies about that and talking with her about it. And so that's always fun to hear when someone gets pretty specific or asks you really specific questions about the show. So that was good. And they're all big fans of Kate there. And that is your hometown, your your childhood home. It, it's that northern, northern
0: edge. Well, okay, <laughs> now they really say, and I never did say, I was from Chicago, I'm just from northwest Indiana, and, um, you know, we got Chicago TV, and we kind of have Chicago accents, and so in this part of the country, they might say I'm from Chicago, but I grew up in the lovely city of Gary, Indiana, which is certainly not Chicago, (laughs) unfortunately.
1: (laughs) But you went to the city often. I was telling Johnny this. Story you told me you used to just ride the train by yourself or with a we, friend, right?
0: With a friend my age, yeah, back in the days when parents didn't worry really, my mother didn't worry much at all. We just we'd take a bus downtown get to downtown Gary and get on the South Shore train, take the train into Chicago and I was with a girlfriend my age, and I know I did it in middle school. And I think, ah, oh, middle know, school. I, I was paranoid that's, to let my kids go around the block, and we were going to Chicago. So there you go. Luckily, my friend uh, knew the city, and we always made it home safely and, you know, never had anything go wrong. But, yeah, we did go quite a bit because it was only just under an hour. So pretty easy And to times do. have
1: changed, yeah. Mm-hmm. We we wouldn't do that now at all, at all. Nope. and. Well, and I alluded to sh- that was Chicago One because we are going back. We had such an incredible response, and so many people tried to register that last week or so before the event when it was already, had already been sold out for a couple of weeks. And so we're going back Thursday and Friday, November 29th and 30th. That's the week after Thanksgiving. And you can uh, register for that online at com or um, – if you've got a flyer in the mail, you can call our office and register by phone. And we have room available and would love to see all those people who were disappointed they didn't get to come in October. So I think that will be a great event, too. And our uh, folks that were there were telling me, when I go back, I need to dress for the warmth or dress, dress warmer because it was 80 degrees on Wednesday when we were. When we were first arriving, and that is uncharacteristically warm for that part of the country that time of the year. So they were telling me, when you come back, wear a coat, Laura. Since Johnny and I did not take coats, so there
0: you go. Oh my, yeah, they don't call <laughs> it the
1: Windy City for nothing.
0: Although there, there you was, go. Was a time years ago, I was there for over um, Thanksgiving, and it was really, really, really warm then too. But yeah, normally by this time, it's it's winter.
1: At least by your standards,
0: it's winter. Take your fur, Laura. You need to (laughs) to wear that fur.
1: (laughs) What fur are you talking about? (laughs) We'll
0: we'll have to work on that between now and the end of November.
1: (laughs) You're so funny. All right, any other announcements before we get rolling today?
0: Wait, did you say, Laura, I wasn't paying enough attention? Are you going back to Naperville or are you doing some other? Same hotel.
1: No, same hotel because it was just really easy to... And our person there, is Hilton Garden Inn in Warrenville, Neighborville, is Brandy Kashuba. She has been the best salesperson we have worked with in our three years of doing conferences. I mean, she is so nice, and so uh, her customer service skills are just amazing. And I don't know that she would ever get a benefit from me giving her a shout out on our show, but she has just, again, been our – and we have dealt with some really super – salespeople at hotels before but brandy has just gone over and above what we ever expected so we are not going to mess that up we're going to be right back in the same place and it was such a nice area of town so Uh uh-huh we're going back you know how i am tried and true
0: well to mess mess the success. yeah Yeah, that (laughs) sounds
1: like it was a good fit it was a great fit great great fit a nice again, really friendly staff, really uh, there's a super target right across the parking lot and lots of places to eat. So that that's great for me. That was, it great. was... <laughs> <laughs> Now me I'd be going uh, to
0: Schomburg so I could do a little shopping in Schomburg, but oh well, well. there
1: you go. There you go. All right, let's get cracking here today. Today we are we are talking about a topic that we've been talking about what feels like forever now with how to increase the toddler's expressive vocabulary, and we are just now getting to the point that that really sparks this whole series. And lots of moms will email me or send me a comment on teachmetotalk.com, and they will say, my child can't really participate in conversation with me. And what that means to me is he or she can't really answer questions. And so we've been talking about how to build vocabulary for show after show after show now, and we started with the really basic levels. And now we're to this point where we're talking about answering questions. The week before last, last week we had a great call with Linnell, and so we were we talked about her questions. But the show before that, show 170, we talked about how toddlers learn how to understand and then begin to answer questions. And we've said that the very first kind of question that a child will answer usually is a "what's that question where they're giving you the answer to a label. The other kind of question that typically comes in and emerges at the same time is when a toddler learns how to answer an early yes-no question like, do you want a cookie or is mommy home? You know, that kind of immediate, um, the answer's right in front of you. It's not an abstract question. It's usually pretty concrete, those first kinds of yes-no questions. And we talked about this a little bit in that children with language delays often have a really hard time differentiating Yes or no, and they'll either cling to one of those answers and ignore the other one <laughs> or just kind of randomly mess it up. But it is one of the early markers for um language disorder, not language delay, but children again who were really having difficulty grasping what words mean and then responding appropriately and I tell a funny story about this. In um, on day one of the conference, where I talk about how, and you've heard me share this story a lot, Kate, but how when kids sometimes mess up, yes, no, and it's really, really funny. Like, a, uh, you know, you know what story I'm about to tell, where I was at church and working with that little class of two year olds on Wednesday nights, and we were having about to have a Christmas program, and uh, the moms were down there with the children. To, before we walked up into the sanctuary to have the program and one little guy who should have been on someone's OT case load because he was just such a sensory seeker really active and he was running around the room and you know being aggressive with the other kids and not listening or anything and his mom you know again we're at church and she's trying to be really polite and really nice and you know so sweet and so she bends down and She's looking at her little boy, and I'm standing really close to her because I just thought, I wonder what she's going to say. And so she starts shaking her head, nodding her head up and down, and she's saying, "Do you want a spanking?" But because her face was so sweet looking and she's smiling, and she's shaking her head yes, he, you know, he shook his head yes too the to answer like yes, and he had no clue what she was asking him then he was just going with her facial expression with that really you know smiley sweet mommy who again at church is trying to hold it all together and not just jerk him up because of how he was acting and he didn't really understand her words he just went with her nice expression and she was shaking her head yes which was that was such an interesting thing for me to see
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: And, you know, in real life, how children do not always understand questions. And, again, a lot of times therapists are confused by this, and the the early emergence of that yes-no isn't something abstract like, you know, do you – like something, or is this a car, or anything like that. It always, at this earliest level, emerges with a choice, a very visual, visible, obvious choice, like, you know, do you want milk? versus Is, you know, something, again, that's a little more difficult or a little more complex for a child um, to understand. So that's the first kind of question, and that typically does merge At the same time, what's that? And we talked about two weeks ago that what's that is usually understood and answered uh, by 18 to 24 months. And, again, in typical development, children will be doing that much, much sooner, and our little guys with language delays and disorders may not fully understand uh, yes, no, until later than that. And I've had a fair number of kids mix that up, haven't you?
0: Oh, yes, a lot.
1: Even those really obvious choices. You know, even Mm -hmm. when their mom is, you know, asking something. So let's talk about how we teach yes-no and the things that you can do to make that a little easier for a child to grasp. And I always like to do it. Well, again, this usually kind of depends on what the kid is doing. And I, more often than not, have had kids really stuck on no. So they'll answer no or shake their heads no for everything with little regard to what you're asking. So when that's the case, you want to use something they really, really, really love to teach that yes response. And what I usually do then too is, you know, I give lots of visual cues where I'm shaking my head yes, and where you know pretty much moving my whole body up and down, <laughs> so they get that whole movement. And don't you always reach over to the kid's head and try to help him shake his head yes too? <laughs> Yes. It's amazing how
0: many of our kids have problems shaking their heads yes and no. It's that motor planning piece,
1: I think, don't you? Absolutely. Because shouldn't be hard. I yeah. know.
0: I know. And yet still a lot of them, and a lot of times it is the kids with who appear to have apraxia, but sometimes not always, but I'm always surprised and, and conversely shocked when, Usually it's the baby sibling of the one I'm working with, and I'm asking the one, do you want a cookie? Ooh, cookie. And I'm not getting a response, and the baby's shaking her head, yeah,
1: yeah, give me the cookie. (laughs) I'm like, look at that. She's 12 months old, and she's telling me yes. I know, because that's when it comes in in typical development, and usually it does come in with uh, your head gestures first, you know, shaking it side to side for no and bobbing it up and down for yes. And it is funny when kids do get that. And then when I started really working with, Lots and lots of language delayed kids, you know. um, And by that time, my own children, Jonathan and Tyler, were coming right along. And it's shocking to me that kids on my caseload could really mess that up because, you know, my typically developing boys certainly got that pretty darn early. And even before they were talking, I could tell that they were really, you know, using those little head knots and shakes appropriately. Uh, and again their other the little body language to let you know that they understood that when it was a simple enough choice. And you know, when it right. was, again like want a cookie. Yeah, they got that pretty darn early. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. That was an easy one.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and Laura, just for the record, we might state that I know I don't and I'm I'm your little grasshopper, so I know you don't we don't really use the sign for yes and no. We use a head right. shake for yes and a nod for no. Um because
1: it's because Yeah.
0: Universal. It's what kids really do and what parents do, and so I kind of feel like, why would you teach yes and no when you can just shake your head? Although I have kids
1: whose parents will do that, or who more often than not their speech pathologist does that. I always think it would have just been so much easier, because I'll even miss a kid's attempt to do that. I'll think when he's trying to shake his hand i think, what mm-hmm. sign is he doing there? What is that? Why is he, uh-huh. you know, bef- and then it'll it'll take me, you know, five, ten seconds before I register that, or sometimes mom will say, he's telling you yes, when, uh-huh. you know, I always think, gosh, I, I wish that we had done that differently. I wish that we had just right. gone with the head gesture first. Because, again, right. if, I, if I'm missing it, and, again, another thing that teaches those signs routinely, wouldn't miss that, but because we don't. I miss it all the time. Have you had a kid before try to sign yes back to you and you have no idea what he's doing? You think, what's he knocking? What's he, why is he moving his head? Well, like perhaps that? I have, but I yes? missed it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I had a kid I this summer. Saying, tell me, tell me,
0: yes! And trying to move his, his head. A lot of times yeah. when they do, especially those motor planning kids, when they do start, especially yes, it's like their whole body has does right. it and not just their head. Like they can't just yeah. move their head. Which right. of course I accept that. That's okay, but it's kind of funny Absolutely. to see them do it because like their whole body's going. I'm like,
1: well, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> well, it does kind of remind me of a younger baby because I remember mm-hmm. again back to my just motherhood experience. My you know young, ten months, eleven months, twelve months. They would kind of bounce their whole little bodies for right. Yeah, give it to me, give it to me. You know, like a like a puppy almost. You know yeah. that whole I'm waiting, come on. Uh, so, yeah, and you know we do see you were mentioning children with motor planning children with cognitive delays really have a harder time with yes no too I mean, it may take meaning that it may take them longer to really learn that, and you may have to really develop activities as a therapist or as a mom set up to teach yes no, so again, if they are stuck on one and uh, more often than not, it's usually no. I have had a few yes kids, but I've had more kids mistakenly answer no for thanks and yes is that your experience too yes yeah it is. and so you get something they really really love to teach yes and a lot of times we'll just ask them do they want it without giving them a forced choice response meaning that we don't say do you want this cracker yes or no and a lot of times just adding the yes or no part will cue some kids enough to get some kind of response, whether it's the head the head gesture, some kind of reaching for it, or even the word. And when I have children that aren't using the word, that are just using the gesture for yes or no, and we're really trying to get the word, that's something I always do is put that forced choice there so that you're saying, do you want Thomas, yes or no? Now, if you were working with the child to try to get them to sign or say or somehow indicate gesture, yes, switch that around and say, you want Thomas, no or yes. And, again, that feels really weird to us when we say it like that because, you know, we talk about yes-no questions. We always say yes first. But if we'll put yes last we're more likely to get a kid to say that or or shake its head appropriately, and then you're more likely to get the response that you want. And it just makes it, that's just a trick. It just makes it easier for a child to be able to learn to do that. So that's what you want to do if you have a kid who's really messing that up and understanding yes is a response. And you need to cue for a, a long time if a child again, who's having some difficulty learning it and who hasn't instinctively picked it up. So you need to shake your head, to yes, to give him the cue with, this is how I want you to respond, this is what I want you to say. And I always say, yes, yes, yes. If you think that they're not saying it because there's, um, there's phonological difficulty there because of that S, just go with yeah. And a lot of parents don't like that and say, I'd rather him say yes, and I think at this point, who cares? Let's just get (laughs) some kind of word there. And again, I would probably have liked to have seen the gesture with shaking your head first to indicate that they even understand it. But I'm not really picky about yes versus yeah. In Kentucky, everyone says yeah. So, again, that's not a really big deal to me. And I've had parents, too, that try to stick the politeness, and these are their more Southern parents, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Oh, my goodness, don't even start trying to stick ma'am on the end of (laughs) this kind of uh, question when you are really teaching that to a child with language of life. That's just another level to mess it up. And if it's a kid with a speech delay or disorder on top of that, you're adding a whole separate word. So leave the ma'am off. You can correct manners and teach politeness later. You want to be sure that you are um, just targeting the semantic part or the meaning part, what matters, and that's going to be the yes-no response. And, again, before a kid can ever say yes or no or even shake his head yes or no, he has to really understand the premise of the question. So if you haven't done a good enough job teaching your vocabulary, it, it, he did, he's not even really understanding what it is you're asking, don't count on a response. And I think that's what happens a lot when parents are saying, you know, with a kid who's talking a little bit, but they really expect him to be able to participate in conversation, and they just start talking about things that are way too abstract and things, again, that have no immediate reference. So that he is totally lost. You know, you're asking him, Do you want to ride a horse when we go to grandma's? you know, and without the, the <laughs> without being at your grandma grandmother's house and, you know, horse if he doesn't really understand that or again you could have even something, you know, more abstract. Do you want to go to Disney World and see, you know, Pluto or, or anything? A lot of times parents are confused that a child's not really processing that, and, again, it's because there's no immediate reference there. You are beyond what they're able to think about or remember or understand. So you want to be sure with these kinds of kids, especially in the beginning, that you're teaching using real life, right in front of them examples so that it makes sense to them. Have you struggled to teach yes, no before, Kate? Or I bet bet you're teaching it just as you come up within your um, play activities. You may not have had a formal goal for that before as a DI. I
0: have only not many times, a couple of times um, that it was specific. Okay, I noticed this really isn't clicking in. Let's see. Um, I had one very interesting little girl, and boy, did she. She just had all kinds of quirky things anyway, but. You know it was one of those where she seemed like she should be there, but she really wasn't and We finally got there, but it took quite a
1: quite a bit of focus
0: effort to do it, yeah, it wasn't
1: it was and, not automatic by any means right, and you may have to with some children go back to things again that you might have used. Um, that were so motivating to them when you were t- first teaching them to sign or really respond to anything. So you may have to go back to those highly preferred and highly loved movement games, like throwing them in the air, or you know doing a big tickle game, or you know swinging them around, or again anything that really entices them and made them really want to participate with you or you know just their very favorite junk food or that was her ticket that
0: finally worked with
1: her yeah we really, really like candy, candy. and chips
0: and cookies <laughs> and that's where we finally got it but even then and she was kind of a Definitely there was some processing. You know, she wasn't necessarily, she was pretty verbal, but yet had right. real difficulty understanding what somebody was saying to her. And there she'd look at you like, what? You know,
1: Yeah, you <laughs> lost me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think using those, starting with those kinds of uh, materials, or that's your stimuli or whatever therapy word you want to put in there, starting with that, it's really going to make the most sense or with a toy that they absolutely love. If it's a little guy obsessed with Thomas, that's how you'll teach yes and no, is, is use those kinds of things. And for your no answers or your no things, uh, you know, again, you would use something, a non-preferred choice. And text of the picture exchange communication system, Outlines how to teach that beautifully, and that you would give a child something he really, really loves, like a food or a toy or an activity, and then you would use a contrast for that, like a glove or a sock, or again, something that he or she would never purposefully choose. And so you're offering that as an option, too. So that if they say yes when you're asking, do you want the sock? And if they say yes, then they get the sock. You give them the sock for them to play with. And if I've had children, and I haven't done this in a long time because I haven't had anybody really working on this, but children, again, who seemed um, not to even understand that they got the sock, then I would proceed to make a big deal about keeping whatever it is that they really, really wanted and play with it. Now, again, that's going to evoke a strong response, or it should, in a child. And then you immediately start back, well, then you have to tell me, do you want Thomas? Yes, yes, yes. And, again, you are modeling that with your head and really indicating um, that that's the response that you want to see. And even if you start to get just a little bit of a nod, you would immediately reinforce that and give them the toy. And, again, that why, that initial why, a lot of kids do have difficulty with that sound. So even if they're just approximating eh for yeah, take it. And Because, again, there could be a component that that... that, um, Sound would be particularly challenging for them to make, so you'll want to move in that direction, but yes, no, a lot of, if if you have a child who's two and a half and is not there yet, you need to teach it and really set up some situations that would make um, perfect sense to that child so that he finally learns it and If you pick your motivators carefully enough, meaning that if he likes it enough, you should be able to teach that um, over. Several sessions, anyway. I, I wouldn't think if if you were picking the right things and really, excuse me, being fun enough for that, that that it would take more than a few weeks. And if mom and dad were reinforcing that for that to sink in, and again, I'm talking about a child who's already two and a half to three, and that they already have some other language going. Now, don't do this with a child who's not saying much of anything else, because even though even though this comes in pretty early in typical development, I would not work on yes no questions with a child who is nonverbal. And some other therapists might disagree with that. And I've seen some other therapists who are doing some um alter you know alternative communication devices. We call that AAC for short, where they're taking a Big Mac switch and they're they're using it like yes no. Don't do that. Don't teach it that way. Just teach those teach a child to request using the word first and not to use it for yes and no. Have you seen other speech pathologists mess that up, Kate, okay. and try to do that first?
0: Um, I really don't know that I have, but I don't think I follow as many speech therapists as you do. So I don't know that I really have, but I know I would certainly not start there.
1: I mean, well, and I, I the- think a lot of... Yeah, I, I think the reason that some therapists do start there is because they think, that well, if I can just give them a way to answer yes, no, that will help their moms really know right. what they want. And I understand that logic, but if you'll think about, you know, with language development, again, a lot of children have difficulty with learning that, that yes, no differentiation. And so that might be a mistake that a therapist would make if they had not pr- done a lot of early intervention or Early intervention kids weren't their primary caseload. If they had maybe worked in um, the schools or, you know, with preschool children, they might think that yes, no would be a great first target, but I would disagree with that. I would think you would start back at an earlier level that we've talked about for weeks and weeks now, so we're not going to go back there again, but that you would start teaching requests with the actual item that the child wanted, with using that name rather than having him answer a yes no question, even with a switch. So, there you go for that. All right, any other agree. questions? Or, yeah, and, and any other comments about yes no? Have you any other things that you think we didn't talk about when we were teaching, talking about well, teaching? I have that? to
0: say that I'm really bad, and I actually teach, ya. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even
1: try for yes,
0: I go right for yeah. And at some point, oh, I don't know, a couple years ago I started doing this, and I don't know why, but a lot of kids seem to respond to it. Here's my yeah. Like I do my head shake, I try and get them to do their head shake, but when I'm really modeling and cueing yeah, which is really what I, I don't, I say, oh, yes, okay, tell me. Yeah, and I take my hands and I shoot them up in the air.
1: Yeah, yeah like that. I do the same thing. <laughs>
0: do you? And it is like I don't that. Know that. Yes, it works. Yep. I mean kids I think said, that's funny and they do it. And by gum, they pop out some version of yeah as they do it.
1: They totally do. And. Parents, look, parents think that's really funny too yeah. when they're doing that, and it's and you know what parents? while they like it because it's an affirmative, it's a positive response rather than that toddler no, no, no. yeah, <laughs> and so they like the
0: yeah,
1: and it is almost like a cheer. You know, like a yeah. cheerleader maze. Yeah, I and that's how I do
0: it. And they like it, you know. Even kids who aren't yeah. great signers or whatever, they're like, ooh, that's kind of fun. And they shoot their little arms up just like I did. And most of the time they're able to get some kind of approximation of yeah. So anyway, I didn't know you did that, but there you go. We both came go. to the same conclusion. It works.
1: <laughs> By <laughs> accident, yeah. You know, and I think that another reason that I think that we'll hear the yeah there is because we're giving them a new motor response or a new mm-hmm. gesture and so it's almost easier to get the word when it's novel like that. And you are pairing it with that movement. And so right. it is um it's it's cute when it happens. And it it yeah, I think it I think it's really cute. I think it's a good trick to do.
0: Well, there you go. We both figured it out. I don't know when I got it. It wasn't that long ago, but since I realized, ooh, that really works, I use it with a lot of them. Yeah! And they keep their arms up. Yeah!
1: (laughs) That's funny. It is funny when you get a yeah kid, though, that that won't do no. And I can still see the last little boy that I had in my... You know, picture him in my mind. And the mom and dad would ask him all kinds of questions, you know, that were terrible because uh-huh. he would say yeah to anything kind of as a joke. You go yeah. Do you want to go outside and eat dirt?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, they would just ask him anything. And I love that family. I worked with their older brother first. So they really had no guard or no defenses when I was there that second time around because you already know them, you know. And right. So long with them with their older child, and then to see them with a the younger child. And so, they that's one of the first things she said when she was talking to me about goals. I don't know that I want you to fix this because we're still having a lot of fun with it. But he does not understand no at all. And he says, Yeah, to everything. And she said, Before he said, Yeah, he said, Uh huh. And they thought that was really cute, too. And so, but you know, for him, it was more like, Uh huh. You know, we had a uh-huh. speech issue. But they thought it was just really cute. And, so they, And again, sometimes we as parents, we do things that as therapists, we would think, why would you do that? But, again, we've all been moms, so we know that how cute that is sometimes. But when you, when you do have that, you, it's almost a little harder to work on it to teach no um, because you're offering things that the child doesn't want. And I, I hate to do that. I feel a little bit mean. Mm -hmm. with working on it that way. But sometimes you'll have a yes kid that you'll have to really teach the no thing. And you have to be careful what you use with that because you can't really use anything that, you you can't really use the food because you would never want to, if you were going to contrast that with a junk food, say, versus a vegetable, you wouldn't really teach them to refuse food or refuse vegetables. Their moms aren't going to be very happy about that. So you'll have to just be careful about what you would choose in that situation.
0: And I have to say, I've worked a lot harder to get yes than I have no. No seems to be more automatic.
1: Yeah, that's what kids are kind of, or what they might get a little bit stuck on. Right. All right, I'm going to look through my notes really, really quickly and make sure that we have said everything we needed to say about that. I think that we have. All right, let's move on to talking about where questions. Where questions come next if you're looking at the continuum of how a child learns to understand and then answer questions. And the, the answer for a where question, you would really think that it would be uh, starting with a prepositional phrase like, you know, where's daddy? would be in the car or... In his room or outside, that honestly the first um answer that a child would give for a where question is usually either here or there, don't you think so?
0: right a lot of times it's right there because that's what I say
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right here, right here do you say right here or right there right there I say right I say right here isn't that funny is that different? That's the southern version. Right here, it's right there, right there. <laughs> and our kids say, "I dare, I dare, yeah, for right yeah. there, right there, yeah." I hear, I hear. Okay, so when you're asking where questions, and that usually, again, like you said, is going to be a really obvious answer, and usually we're teaching that whole. We first begin teaching a child to understand where when we're working on something like object permanence or something like uh, peek in a social game. So really, really the earliest versions of understanding that that concept are when you're working on those kinds of games. And then you move to um, kind of that problem-solving phase where you don't necessarily know where the item is that you're looking for but that you're looking for it in hopes that you can find it. And, again, that whole right here, right there is the more applicable and appropriate response than teaching or understanding even a prepositional phrase at that point. So, again, if you have a child that's not doing that or not understanding when you're saying, where'd he go or where is it? From the whole, again, the earliest perspective of that, don't necessarily think that you're going to get a verbal response, and if you do, it's certainly not going to be in the form of a real a real answer. With using uh, again more advanced words like prepositions, like in there or out in the box or. Um, out of, you know, wherever a child is just not going to be there yet. But I've seen that written in some places as an explanation or as a way to teach where, and I always think, "Mm, you haven't really done this before, (laughs) or you would know that that comes later. You've got to teach those, you've got to see that emerging in that first circumstance before you would see it later. Does that make sense to you? Yes.
0: I yeah. and wouldn't when even be I, thinking of those kind of responses, really.
1: Well, it only takes a speech of to mess it up like that. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I probably really out somebody, one of my
0: kids said, it's under the book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, again, really, I know that they're te- They're thinking about it as it's linked to prepositions. And mm-hmm. I'm just here to make the obvious to say that comes after those other um, other kinds of responses. So with where questions, when you're working on that, I sing and I, I use where, where is it, where did it go, those holistic phrases much no. sooner than I would even probably say, where's the car or where's daddy. And I guess that you would say those things, but my point is, you've probably already introduced where questions in another context before you really expect a child to be able to answer that. And do you get what I'm saying by that? We've done it as a part of of a verbal routine long before we expect the, the verbal response we've introduced that as a way to get a child's attention or have him participate with us or have a social response or any kind of, again, it's introduced long before they would be expected to give that verbal response to where. So if you're working with a child who you haven't done those kinds of things with, you need to back up and make sure that you've done a fair amount of introducing it just with like if you're playing with a toy and let's say you're pretending that You know, Elmo is hiding while you're playing with Elmo in, you know, uh, like a little playground set. And you're doing the whole, where's Elmo? Where is he? Where'd he go? Elmo, Elmo, where are you? You're introducing where in that context first. And so if you have a child that you're you're thinking about your own child but he can't answer where questions in conversation, make sure that you've done a fair amount of modeling it at that most simplistic level first. Boy I'm, I'm being I'm being so wordy to say that's where you start.
0: <laughs> well how about this? See I don't know all the, the philosophical underpining. Like you, Laura, I do that where oh wear song ad uh-huh. nauseum all day long. So if you just put that in your repertoire, you'll already be introducing the where concept because I do that very early on, a lot of times it really is just to get their attention, to build anticipation and excitement, to, you know, work some singing in, because so many of our kids respond to, I dare call it music, but singing anyway. (laughs) Um, You know, so if you've done that, and haven't you had, I know you have, because I have so many kids who start because whenever I do where, oh, where, I do my hands, like, up and down, uh-huh. like I'm asking. Yeah. And kids will use that as a natural gesture for where, like, where the heck did it go? Exactly. And they put both hands That's their out. Yeah. yeah. A lot of kids will say, go, and but they have their hands out, like, where did it go? Right. Well, I do that as I sing the song, where, oh, where. So if you just work that into your early visits, there. You've already addressed the, you know, at least introduced the where concept Exactly. But at that point, like you said, are we really expecting them to say, "You know, there's Elmo. Hi, you know, look Elmo." Yeah. No, we really we're are just Elmo's in the high.
1: barn. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it would be great if they did, but really, you know, at that point, I'm just kind of trying to hold on to their attention, keep them enthused about what we're doing. Right. Um, again, and that's some my kind high of re- point. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but you have to have established it. And so, if a mom is listening and she's saying, My son can't answer questions when, when I'm asking him, Where are your shoes? or Where's the ball? or where's, where's your sister go? If you've not done a good job of establishing kind of that foundational uh, routine for where, he's certainly not going to be able to understand how to respond to this kind of question because he probably doesn't even really realize you're asking it yet. And so, again, building that into your early therapy routines is what we advise all therapists to do for their kids, and most therapists are probably already doing that, whether they intentionally meant to set it up for this level or not. Uh, I think we have a fair number of moms who listen who've not had their children in speech therapy yet, Right, And so they may not, they or at two and one, when they were doing, or when they could have been doing this kind of routine, they didn't know to do it. So my point is if you have an older child, two and a half, three, who's not, who doesn't answer these kinds of questions, this is how you start to work on it at the very beginning. It's working in where as a question in those kinds of play routines or daily routines as, as the number one starting point before you would ever expect a child to be able to really answer that. And, again, a child has to be responding nonverbally before we would ever expect him to respond verbally. So if you're asking a child, where's the ball? You know, where's your pillow? Where's Lightning McQueen? And he's not going to get the object or... Responding in some way, he doesn't under. Not only does he not understand where, but he doesn't understand the object either, or he would be going to get that. And so you don't really have. Uh, you don't have. Uh, a, the The question is not, or the problem is not. He's not responding to be in conversation. The real problem with that kind of child is there's a huge receptive language component and he really doesn't even understand the noun that you're asking for. The, the The problem isn't that he doesn't understand the question word. And again, that's where I think a lot of moms who, who've who not had their therapy yet, they haven't really uncovered the root of the problem. And the root of that right. problem would be there's some receptive language issues. And that does happen where we'll see some children, or. Or, like you mentioned before, your little friend who wasn't understanding yes, no, she probably couldn't have responded to a question like that, you know, especially like finding an unfamiliar object out of sight. Even though she might have named that object, maybe if it were right in front of her, if she saw her Dora doll, she would say, Dora! But if the Dora doll were, you know, Somewhere in her mom's room, she might not necessarily have been able to go get that on request, or knowing what you're talking about, or especially if you put it in the context of a multiple-step command. I want you to go upstairs and go in into mommy's room and look under the bed and get and find your door doll. Where's your door doll? Dora's in there. Where's Dora? Go up. You know, again, that whole kind of multiple-step sequence. She might be totally lost during all that. And, again, the problem's not really that she didn't understand the where question. The problem is she doesn't understand the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And, again, I think a lot of moms might miss that.
0: It's particularly easy to miss um, when kids are more verbal. And sometimes you do, you know, we do see those kids where they seem to be beyond something that basic, because they're using a fair number of words, and yet when you really back up and look, what does he or she really understand when it's not self-generated, it's very easy to lose those kids, but those kids are easy to miss because you think, wow, Mm -hmm.
1: he's talking quite a bit. Except when you turn around and go ahead. No, go ahead because your thing is going to be better than what I'll say. Yours is going to be real life, and then I'm going to put the academic spin on it. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was,
0: no, I was just going to say, when you turn it around and and you kind of dictate the conversation, um, sometimes it's kind of clear they don't really get it. And parents, and, you know, I struggle with it myself, and certainly a lot of parents don't understand that just because a kid understands something, to say it doesn't mean they necessarily quote-unquote understand it when it's said to them. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to people, but it's the, the truth.
1: Well, and if we were testing a child like that, they would score higher on the expressive portion of a test than the receptive portion. And, again, if you're a mom listening, expressive means what a kid can say and receptive means what he can demonstrate that he understands. And so we'll see that that's a really atypical pattern for a child to be able to say more than he or she understands. It always means there's a disorder going on, meaning that they're not learning language in the regular way, because typically children understand more than they can say when they're at this toddler level. And so, again, because we all just naturally assume that about children, because that's how children learn language, so many parents and even therapists can mistakenly think that a child understands more than he or she really does. And so until you see a kid do it, until he's able to really demonstrate that he understands, we shouldn't really give them credit for it. And I like what you said to me, Kate, and I remember you saying this a long, long, long time ago, and you've said it a lot since then, but I remember when you were saying it, I mean, and again, this would be on one of our early self-hat conversations driving around in southern Indiana <laughs> with you saying. I'm, f- I'm afraid to hear. It wasn't, <laughs> no. he just doesn't get it. <laughs> no, this, but it's like that, but it's really profound. You said, okay. I just assume that a kid knows nothing. I just yes. go in thinking he knows nothing. If I'm there, I just naturally, I've just come to not believe what anybody might tell me he understands until I see him do it and until I, you know, know that he There's There's proof to
0: show me, well, and I'm sure that was born out of, you know, reading somebody else's report, looking at the scores, assuming that's probably pretty close to accurate, going in there and, and, you know, after two or three or four weeks scratching my head thinking, whoa, you know, this, this is not at all yeah. the child that was described in that report. Right. Um, and that happens occasionally, you know, not a yeah. lot, thankfully, but occasionally people will score kids way higher than they really are receptive in their receptive skills and sometimes even expressive because mom yeah. might, you know, say they have 50 words and she means 50 words ever, and that's not my idea of 50 words. Um, but right. you know what I'm saying. It, it can, it can exactly. be skewed either way. And, yeah, and then you think, oh, my gosh, here sure, I've been working on nothing but expressive language, and this kid really doesn't understand much of anything I'm saying to him.
1: Right. So, and, and, you know. and, again, that is a really common mistake for parents to make. But sometimes yes. therapists make it too. And I yes. made it earlier in my career when I would – Take a parent's word for it, because I would think, mm-hmm. oh, the parent knows this child better than me. she says, "Mom, she knows this, and I've only seen him twice, and I have to go with what she says, and I think that's probably you know that realization is probably why we had that conversation when when but I just remember thinking that's a really profound Um, Statement, and it's something that early interventionists should really think about and adapt, because a lot of times what we read about kids in the report or what we hear on those earlier visits may not necessarily tend to be reality for a kid. And sometimes it's the other way:
0: the kids' reception skills are really pretty good, or at least fairly decent, and mom says. He doesn't seem to understand anything I say. And you think, well, no, Ashley. And you know that, Laura, this is the time when I hear more often than not parents say, he knows he's just being stubborn. He's just right. choosing not to. You know, this he's is lying. when you get that yeah. explanation about this is a behavioral right. choice he's making. He right. he, And I'm not going to say that kids don't ever choose not to, but I think that, um anybody who works with kids on a fairly regular basis has a pretty at least I feel like I do and I know you do. You have a pretty good read on when a kid is really choosing not to. Right. You know, they're even if they're not screaming no at you, their their facial expressions and their gestures and their actions kind of tell you he's not trying. You know,
1: he is yeah. not. A lot But it's of times a, it's an attitude and it's right. their attitude but a lot of times parents think they're being bad attitude when they're yeah. not even there. when the
0: kid yeah. is clearly
1: trying you know like right. you're
0: saying where is you where is the dog show me the dog where is the dog and they're pointing to the cat or the horse or yeah. the pig and it's <laughs> like well how can you say he's being stubborn you know right. he's pointing he's wrong he's, he's
1: not stubborn yeah
0: he yeah. <laughs> yeah. <It> doesn't know <laughs> What we asked him, he doesn't know the word for dog or pig or cat or whatever. You know, and there, and then, you, get, I mean, there are those kids who will point at the pig and snicker and laugh, you know, smile at you. Well, okay, he's being cute. But if right. the, you're not getting any of those pretty obvious clues that he really does understand it, right. mm, I think you have to assume, no, he really doesn't get it.
1: And you have to just back up and teach it. And that's, right. you know, I... Back up, back up, back up. I went in the conferences now. That's something I really hone in on that we you realize that you've given a kid more credit. You know, that's not the end of the world. All that means is you're going to revise your plan. You're going to work Mm -hmm. on easier goals. You're going to tell mom, hey, (laughs) let's just really focus on him following some directions, and, and let's get proof that he understands because he's got to understand any word before he's going to be able to say it. So for the next week, that's what we're going to work on. You know, and I tell parents that a lot is, you know, he we are not ready to work on this talking piece. Or if I get a child, and I've talked a lot about my little friend that I'm working with now who um, was pretty echolalic, you know, at, at three and a half, and saying to, that, saying to that family, okay, she knows how to talk. That's not the problem. The problem is she doesn't really link meanings with words. And so we have mm-hmm. to back up and work on that receptive piece. And, again, that's what I think when I'm getting a lot of these emails from moms who say, he can't participate in conversations with me, he can't answer questions, it's because they miss that huge receptive language component. And so when we're teaching a child, you know, back to kind of our topic of the day, when we're teaching him to answer a where question, if you want verbal response, you have to know that he can say under my bed or in my room or outside or whatever that answer would be. And if you've not heard that in the context of him imitating it or giving you that response in some kind of way, you're not ever going to hear it as an answer to a question first. And I think we talked about that last time, not last show but the show before, when we were saying that when we ask a child what's that, what's that, what's that, when we're getting them to try to answer a question, say if we're looking at things together or even looking at pictures in a book, if you never ever heard them say that word um, either in imitation of you or on their own in another context like they're requesting it, you will not get it as an answer to a question first. I mean, it just does not happen with children or with toddlers anyway with language delays and so when you're expecting answering asking a child a question expecting a response again if you've never heard that (laughs) that kind of word before you're not going to get it here so you've got to teach a child and again that's why we went all the way back to talk about basic vocabulary development and again that that same premise or that same theory holds true here if you've not heard the response before in another context you won't get it in the context of of a question so if you're saying where's daddy and daddy's out in the garage don't expect your little guy to pop out in the garage you know before you've heard that word or before you've ever heard him say right there or out out there, or you know, it again. You have to have heard a word in another context before it's ever going to be used in the context of answering questions. And sometimes we don't explain that to parents well enough. Sometimes as therapists, we don't think about it even in that kind of, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? You know, we don't think about well, how sh- how should I hear that word first? You know, how why wouldn't I expect to hear him answer my question? with a word you know we just haven't thought about it we haven't spent hours and hours analyzing this stuff like you and I do every single week (laughs) and for 10 years before we 15 years before we started the podcast or how many ever years it was we started the podcast in 2008, and I guess we had been friends about 10 years at that point. You know, all those phone calls and all those conversations, and Johnny <laughs> likes to tell people at the conferences when they're talking about the podcast, well, the reason we even had the podcast is because I would hear Laura talk to Kate for hours and hours. was all they hours. talked about
0: anyway. They decided they might as well go public <laughs> after you explained what a podcast was, of course.
1: Of course, yeah. Of course. And so, well, Laura, again, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just no, saying, no, you're unless making... you, unless you've heard a kid say it, unless you've heard a kid use the word in another context, you can never expect to get it back as a response to a question. It just it just doesn't work that way. Were you going to say something related to that?
0: Um, you... Only loosely. I was going to say <laughs> that I spend a lot of time early on with kids hiding things in plain sight, I mean, hiding it right in front of them so that uh, it gives me the opportunity to say, oh, where's, you know, and better to hide something, you know, Thomas, where's Choo, Choo Hide something they love. Hide it right. under a blanket. Hide it under a pillow. Hide it under your leg. Hide it in their mm-hmm. shirt. Hide it, you know, wherever right. you can find. And so you're teaching the concept, where is it? Where's that? Exactly. Then they begin to understand what does where mean, you
1: know, <laughs> right? And that's the starting point. And so mm-hmm. if you have haven't done that with a kid, you back up to there, and then you're really modeling these answers when you're talking about it. And where should be a question that you're doing routinely and that you're asking routinely. And again, a kid has to respond to it nonverbally before you'll get a verbal response, and then your first verbal responses will be some version of here or there, right here, right there, here it is, there it is, that kind of thing. Then later on, and the the test has it at two and a half, between 24 and 30 months is when they would start to be able to answer where questions with more of a phrase. And so, again, until a child is developmentally there, meaning that he's using lots of other phrases and lots of other contexts, you can't really expect him to verbally answer that question. So you have to work a child through that continuum um, until you get it there. And, again, until he's, he's really able to understand that question and respond to it in some way, then he'll start to ask the question himself. Then he'll start to say, you know, where's Daddy? Or where's Mommy go? Or you know, where's where's whatever? Where where's doggy go? Or where go? Even without that middle, or just like you said, go. Yeah. They're not until they have a really basic understanding of that, and until they've started to answer it, even in its simplest forms, then they'll start to really ask it. And again, I think a lot of our little guys who aren't asking questions yet, we might start working on it before we even realize, oh, they don't really understand it from a comprehension perspective yet. And so you've got to make sure that you're looking at how those things emerge and the sequence of that and wherever the breakdown is, meet them there and treat that and work on that before you expect those other sequences. You can't really skip too many steps in there and things fall into place. So they have to be hearing it, and then understanding it, and then responding to it in some way that, again, is nonverbal, and then responding to it in a verbal way that's really simplistic, and then, and only then, will you start to hear them ask the question, and then really answer it in a more sophisticated way with, or a more complex way with a phrase. All right, so it just kind of... Put all of that in a little nutshell, but that's really the sequence that you have to work on it. There you go. Or work toward it, yeah.
0: And, Laura, I just want to say one little tidbit before you say goodbye, and that is my heart races when I hear you talk about you've got to talk to parents about this receptive issue. You've got <laughs> to explain to them, and that's because that's uh, – there are a fair number of times in my throughout my day that I wish I was a little sweeter and a little more southern – and you always do such a beautiful job of saying that in such a nice, nice way. And, you know, parents always seem to, although they never like to hear it, they take it pretty well. And my northern approach is not nearly as sweet. And I, I do say that, And I, it, but it, it's so hard for me to say. And I'm just saying this for parents who have heard it or therapists who are thinking, <gasps> how am I going to say that? This mom, and you know what, we all have 95% of the kids on our caseload. Moms just want them to talk. We get that. We want them to talk, too. And it's really hard, at least for me, even though people think, oh, you're so tough, you're so forward, you'll just say anything. Really, I don't, and stuff like that. Not really. Not really. I act like I would, but you're (laughs) the one who manages to say it. It's that darn southern thing, you see. If I had more southern sweet in me, I could say it and I'd be okay. But as it is, I get pretty nervous. And I do do say it, but I struggle to say it. But I do agree with you in the reason, you know, I I am your student. And I do agree that if parents don't understand that, they're really focused on the wrong thing. They are putting the cart before the horse they've got those kids have to, you know, they're going to understand it before they're going to say it. And I say those sorts of things, but I'm just putting a little word out there for the other therapists or parents who are saying, oh, "How do you do that?" You know what? You dig deep and you do it. And you, you can talk about it your mind. Yeah, yeah, you can talk about positive things too, but really, and there are certain kids on my caseload where On a fairly regular basis, I might say, oh, he did really well today. No, 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 no. Now, I am still focusing on, you know, you still need need to be focusing on, because every parent out there, or at least the vast majority of them, just want their kids to talk. It's much easier somehow to accept that this is a talking issue I mean, an expressive language issue as opposed to a receptive language issue or both. Right. And I right. get that, and I, uh, my heart goes out to you because I hate the conversation, but I force myself to have it because I know it's critical, because I do mm-hmm. think when parents begin to understand that and they change their primary focus, the
1: kid makes a lot better pro- progress. Exactly. And, you know, the the thing is, if you're a therapist and really working on this, the – you just make yourself do it, and the more often you do it, the easier it gets. And you may still feel uncomfortable, but you'll get better at it with time. And I always just think you can't really withhold information from a parent. And, again, you may have to really search for and really practice in the car on your way to the visit or practice in the five minutes before they come to see you how you're going to say it. And I Uh, try to be as nice as possible, but so that they still understand. You know, this is something. And when when you really explain to your parent that this is heartfelt and that you're coming at this knowing that you want them to know that you care about their kid and that you care about them. And so if you can approach it in that way and think, I'm going to wrap this in as much empathy and kindness and in a nurturing way like genuine a concern
0: for their child right. right it's not just hey wake up smell the coffee yeah. but but i do struggle with it and i do and i guess i'm getting better at it i still don't like it i yeah. still well, who see likes parents, it yeah yeah i still see parents hurt right. despite the fact that i'm trying to be as gentle as possible but yet i still think oh as much as i hate to to do that to make a parent feel worse, you know, I right. do think but they have to know. They have to know they have because to know. Yeah. Because then they slow it down and back it up and focus on what's appropriate and that's when your your child's really their child's really gonna come along. So I'm just saying I know every time you said I I think I wish I could say it the way you say it, Laura, I try. i <laughs> <laughs> And when I'm with you with kids and you say it, I think, oh, that sounded really good. I'm going to have to get word for word. Even if I said word for word, it wouldn't sound quite as sweet because I don't have that southern drawl on there.
1: But it is, it's is—it's
0: hard. You know, it's just hard. Yeah, and I know there have got to be other therapists out there thinking, oh, I've got three kids on my case and I wish I could say that to their mommies or their daddies or their daycare worker or whatever. Yeah. And it, and really, I'm just saying for those of you who struggle with it the way I do, practice, practice, do it, do mm-hmm. it, do it. It really yeah. is important that it be said and probably not just once. You know, yeah, and you can of, even I, say,
1: gosh, I'm really nervous about talking to you about this and I don't want to hurt your feelings and I'm not here to make you feel worse about what's going on, but I need to tell you, what I'm really, really worried about with him, and if we don't work on this, then every nothing else is going to get better. And so right. even if you are just painfully honest like that and have, you know, some self-revelation there in that, man, I'm scared to talk to you about this, mm-hmm. that makes it a little bit easier, too, I think, too. And it really gets the parent's attention. And then right. they know that you are, again, that that response is very genuine and that you are doing everything you can not to be hurtful or disrespectful or not to be, you know, you're not being mean about their child. You're not, you're not being rude. You're just saying this is what we've got to work on and this is our real issue and I'm afraid that we've, we've focused on the wrong things. And if we can back up a little bit and redirect our energies, this will get better. And, I mean, I have that happen all the time where I, where I say to parents, and you know now, because I'm just feel really confident in what I do, I can say we are not working on expressive language because I promise if you will work on this receptive piece, the expressive will come and mm-hmm. because I have this website and this reputation now parents usually know me before they come, and they're they believe me, and so right. they're able to do it, and then when they see it. And so, but, but anybody can say that to a parent. Is I promise, when we work on this receptive stuff, the expressive stuff will get better, because that's right. just how it goes. And if we spent more time working on that, I think we would all have oh a greater percentage of success with with our kids, and it would go faster because then right. you're treating the real problem, you're treating the right. real issue, and a lot of therapists don't know to do that.
0: And I do see, you know, I. share some kids with speech therapists, some kids I kind of see for communication and I do see that. I will say any more at the IFSP meeting when we're writing outcomes a lot of times, you know, they're all supposed to be parent directed and all that and parents will say, well, I just want him to talk, you know, and so we write some kind of appropriate goal. Oh, he'll use 40 to 50 words or signs to express his wants and needs. If I have any suspicion at all, and I usually do, that probably this isn't just expressive language. This probably does have at least some portion of a receptive. I always suggest an outcome that relates to receptive language. He's going to follow a variety of simple commands so that we're able to Mm -hmm. determine whether or not he knows what we're saying to him, you know, something. And I do see um, that that's not uncommon for for some speech therapists, anyway, to omit. They don't say it at the meeting. Mm-hmm. They don't put it on right. the plan. They don't, right. even though they probably know that receptive right. language is a concern, they don't articulate it. They don't spell it out on the plan. They don't discuss it with the parents. And I get it right. because I just divulged, I don't like it either. It's really not my idea of fun, but right. um, I certainly am a believer that it's really imperative that parents get that. Because when they do, then they start doing stuff that's working. And before you know it, hey, you can address expressive language. But until exactly. they really
1: understand it, hmm. You know. Well, so anyway. in working on receptive language, there's no more functional goal. Because when a kid begins to follow some commands and daily routines, everybody's life gets easier. It's not a stro- as much of a struggle. And, again, I do think we... Forget the power of those simple little things that that typically developing kids do. Go throw your diaper away. Bring me your shoes. Put your cup in the sink. All of those really early, you know, when a kid's looking for, when a kid's, you know, crying and the mom can say, where's your posse or where's your sippy cup? And the kid can start to kind of, you know, dig down in the car seat and look for it himself. Everybody's life gets better. And so addressing those really simple receptive language things all the way up to what we were just talking about, where a child's understanding where, you know, that that's important. And I do think a lot of therapists think it's implied when you're working on language with a family, but they don't know it unless you say it. And I hardly ever have a kid without receptive language goals, unless it's just a straight kind of speech intelligibility kid, because that's how important it is. Even if you're thinking it's just a receptive language issue if there's any hint at all i have a formal goal for that because otherwise it, it's not attended to like it should be by everybody involved and right. so that's a really good point i'm glad you brought that up so glad you included that thanks for
0: keeping it real kate well you know i'm <laughs> usually the one saying well now i think it's important we need to go there and You know, it is. I don't like it. But, you know, and the other thing is when it really, 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 really is just an expressive language thing, those kids follow commands all day long. You know what I mean? Those are the kids there, too. They don't have one word. But you can say, now, Johnny, go to your room, get your red truck and your blue ball and bring them to Mommy and sit down here and we're going to play. And, boom, they're back. Right. yeah. Those are not the, you know, those are fun kids to work with, but those are not the the typical kid with language delays at too
1: in early intervention
0: you know, though. Right, in not. early intervention. They're out there, but they are right. definitely the exception. And I do think that well-intentioned therapists who probably do know don't aren't comfortable enough to just say, well, you know, we got to talk about receptive language. He's got to be able to follow a variety of commands. That's how we're going to know what he really does understand. Right. Um And revisit that topic as it's appropriate as you go along, because it's an easy thing to overlook, um, and then the child doesn't do as well, because... Exactly. Yeah, you know,
1: they're not really ready. Exactly. If you need some help with that and you're a therapist or a mom, let me recommend two products from my website at com and then we're going to close the show. The first one, and especially if you're a parent, Teach Me to Listen and Obey, one, the number, and two, the number. <laughs> Volume one is for under 24 months or under the 24-month developmental level or for children who understand very little, if any, language. And then Teach Me to Listen and Obey, two, is for over the 24-month developmental level. And the whole DVD is, is me explaining receptive language or how a child builds his or her comprehension skills and then giving you lots of very concrete visual examples with real children where I'm telling you how to work with them, and then you see me work with the kid, and then I tell you again what we did. So excellent tool. If you're a therapist and you're thinking, well, I kind of know how to do that or there's any doubt in your mind that you may not be addressing it perfectly well, get the DVD because you can see really uh, in living color how to work on this stuff with children. Uh, young two-year-olds on Teach Me to Listen and I there are quite a few three-year-olds on there. The second tool for speech-language pathologists and developmental interventionists or developmental therapists, special instructors, whenever you call yourself in your state, is Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. And it is full of receptive and expressive goals. And, they again, it goes all the way up to a developmental age of 48 months or 4, but there's a section for under twelve months and then twelve to twenty-four months and twenty-four to thirty-six and thirty-six to forty-eight, and it takes all those milestones in which one of those would be understanding where questions or asking where questions. And it tells you how to work on that. And then there's always a little blip at the bottom of every section for you to recommend for parents for how to work on that skill at home. So again, a great tool. To use, And if you are terrible at coming up with homework for parents or struggle in how to explain those things to parents, I promise you could, that, that book is written in such a straightforward manner that you can listen or read that explanation, practice how to say it out loud, go to a family's house and say the same thing <laughs> and use it as your script and use it as a way to explain it because, again, I think it's a pretty straightforward tool and if you struggle with any part of the stuff that we've talked about today, Get yourself that DVD or a copy of uh, Teach Me to Talk the Therapy Manual and teach yourself how to do it. Because it's not hard once you understand what you're going to say to parents and then actually apply it and practice it and make it your own. So I just wanted to mention those two tools.
0: Well, I think right. it's
1: important too, although we're dragging on, Laura, but
0: let me say one more thing. I'm, I'm <laughs> long winded. Go today. ahead. The DVDs in the manual, I think that um, what is pretty unique or very unique and this can be very difficult for some of us um, therapists to to use well is how to do it in a fun way, how to do it within the context of play. Um, I think parents and sometimes therapists, you know, they're barking out the commands, but they forgot the fun part and that is when you can see some of the behavioral stuff arise and perhaps the kid isn't choosing to. And so really important to know how to do it in a fun, playful setting so that they are motivated to try, and that's when you really know, okay, he doesn't get it or he does get it. Because if they're trying and they're not succeeding, you can assume he just didn't really get it. Right. So Anyway, that's a great point. That's a
1: great point. All right, well, we have talked about questions today. Next week, we're finishing up the series on answering questions, and we'll be talking about those higher level uh, questions like who and uh, why and those kinds of things. And then we'll also talk about how to give forced choice responses. We talked about that a little bit for yes and no today, but we'll talk about it in the context of helping a child move toward answering open-ended questions like, what did you do at school today? Or what did you and Grandma do at her house? A lot of parents will write me with these kinds of questions. And, again, we've moved through this whole series now from the very simple, and now we're really getting into things that are more complex. So we're going to finish up questions, and then after that, we're going to talk about those other things, Uh, not next week, but the upcoming weeks, about teaching object functions and understanding negation. And, again, all of those higher-level receptive language goals that a lot of us never teach but really, really should. So that's upcoming. wanted to give a little preview. And that's it for today. Parting words, Kate, uh, third time for parting words. I hope somebody got (laughs) off the treadmill about 30 minutes ago
0: or they're going to need some (laughs) oxygen before they get through the end of this podcast.
1: Other yeah, than that, no. An hour and <laughs> 20 minutes now. Your exercise is done, ladies. Call it a day. Hope you'll join us next week. Sounds good. <laughs> Bye Thanks, soon. Laura. Bye.